Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. So I got really interested in these structural reforms that could produce more bipartisanship. Outside of caucus, it's a it's not safe to talk in there anymore. You can't say what you're thinking out loud anymore. Probably the most people I've ever had come to hearings on any topic was mm -hmm. Measure 49. When I was in high school, the Spotted Owl got listed, and I was happy, you know, to see someone no filter speak his mind because I think that's what independent, unaffiliated, and moderate voters of both parties are looking for. All right, folks. Today we have a very, very entertaining podcast. I enjoyed this conversation very much. Our guest today is former state representative Brian Clem. Brian Clem is a fifth-generation Oregonian. He was born in Coos Bay, and his uh, rural roots certainly shine through in this episode. He earned his college degree from OSU in Corvallis, where, as you will hear, he was student body president and tricked a future colleague into voting for his budget while he was president. That was funny. He lives in Salem with his wife, Carol, and their daughter. He was elected to the state house in 2006. He defeated a Republican incumbent during a blue wave year. He also has been sort of in the conversation for higher office at a couple different points. In 2010, he announced he was running for governor and ultimately pulled out of that race to support Governor Kitzhaber. And he was also widely considered a potential candidate. And he tells us in this episode that he actually spoke with the DCCC about running for Congress in Oregon's new sixth congressional district. He resigned from the state legislature in 2021 to move on to other projects, which we discuss, and to take care of his mother. That's a little bit about Brian Clem. The topics today are all the things that he is in the news for discussing and some, I take the liberty of asking him about some major legislative accomplishments that he succeeded in either during or just before I started working in the legislature in the early 2010s and really enjoyed those parts of the conversation. But Alex, what are your takeaways before we jump into the episode? Yeah, I thought it was probably our most personal episode that we've done so far in terms of personal stories. And I won't get too much into it because I'll let people listen for themselves so they can enjoy it here for the first time. But yeah, I mean, I thought it was fantastic. I thought too, what was most interesting in terms of his advice, which I, I mean, I feel like is in general to inspiring politicians is be authentic, be yourself, which I feel like is not something we particularly hear that much anymore in politics. It's like, all about calculation about this issue or this policy Stay on or message. whatever. Stay on Stay message. Stay on message. Yeah. And he just basically says, which I mean, I'm in line with it. Just like people want to see you as a real person if you're running for public office. And I think that that he reiterates that multiple times in different examples. So I thought that was, just thought it was interesting kind of how he talked about that. Also really interesting segment on loss of timber jobs and potential alternatives forward. So yeah, I thought it was a great episode overall. Before we jump into the episode, Alex, you weren't here when Reagan Canope had to fill in as guest host, but we've officially met our threshold on YouTube subscribers, and we're going to get to name our YouTube channel which, with our official name, which our editor, Buddy Terry, tells us is an important milestone, something that Alex Titus has been very strenuously pushing over the last few weeks. So congratulations, Mr. Titus, on your victory. The next road from 100 is to a million, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a close goal. But thank you to, to those of you who went on YouTube and subscribed. It actually is very helpful, and it'll help us build a little more traction and be seen by a few more eyeballs. So thanks for listening and supporting our work on the podcast, and uh, we hope you enjoy this week's episode with former Representative Brian Clem. Mm -hmm. 
Former Representative Brian Clem, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ben and Alex. I've enjoyed your show. Happy to be on it. We're excited to have you on. So we've got a bunch of questions, in fact, some from ancient history in the Oregon legislature, some that are newer. But I was reading a couple articles about you and your introduction to state legislative politics seemed almost like an accident. Can you tell the story of how you ended up running for the state representative the first time? Well, I was a staffer much earlier in life, right? Just out of college, I went to work for Ron Wyden. And after one cycle down to be a staffer in the 95 session, I was a student lobbyist for OSU back in 93. All those things combined led me to believe I would never run for office. So that <laughs> was definitely not something I thought I would do, but, but, but I enjoyed the work I had for it was a guy named Cliff Tro, Senator from Corvallis, who's still with us, luckily, and enjoyed myself, met Carol there. And then, you know, I was sort of farming and working on the orchard, and I got talked to by some folks about running. And then I just, frankly, I just didn't like the guy that was representing me. And I thought I would not probably do that great a job or enjoy the work in the long term, but I could at least beat him. And then, you know, leave after two years. And then 16 years later, I ended up liking the job and enjoying the work. And I ended up burying the hatchet with him. So we made up years later. No kidding. That's cool. And so I want to make sure I have this right. Is it true that you were student body president at Oregon State University back in the day? I was. Any highlights from your tenure as president that you recall? Um, I tricked Chris Edwards into voting for my budget. He was on the, he was like this little college Republican spee fraternity guy. And I tricked him into voting for my budget by shifting a whole bunch of spending off budget and then claiming that we had no increase in the student fee at all due to my, my efforts. While we definitely did. And <laughs> he was a freshman, I think, and didn't know how to ask the right questions yet. So that was, that was probably the highlight of my life. This is later Democrat Senator Chris Edwards, who now I think works for, he works for someone in the timber industry, right? Yeah, he runs their association. He's the president of OFIC now. That's right. But yeah, he, he and I got elected the same year, and we hadn't seen each other since college. And then like you know, 20 years later, we're running for the House at the same time. And by this time, <laughs> he'd become a Democrat, and we, we were part of that freshman class that got us in the majority at 3129 back in uh, 07, 06 election, 07 session. And that was Berkeley with- was the speaker. That's what I was going to say. Yep. Speaker Jeff yeah. Merkley. Well, let's fast forward a little bit, and then we'll wander back in time as we move on. But a lot of folks were talking about you and Oregonians Already pack that you created over the last few weeks. It looks like from the Orstar filings that I saw today, looks like you all spent about $120,000. This You can correct us if your numbers are different. But uh, according to the reporting, I think OPB called this your brainchild, but something that you built with a few former legislators, Representative Caddy McCune from the South Coast, former Representative Betty Comp from Woodburn, Jeff Barker from Aloha, Debbie Boone from the North Coast, and former Senator Arnie Roblin. What was the origin story? Where did this come from? Why did you decide to create this pack? Yeah, so this group, along with several others, a few still in and a few that, that had already retired, you know, we would get together for dinner on Tuesday nights. So some of us refer to uh, as the Tuesday night supper club <laughs> and others call it the mod D's and others have other names for it, I'm sure. And we would get together and talk about, you know, bills and issues and caucus dynamics. And, and so when I left, you know, recently I was talking to a couple of the, those that are staying behind 
and they were a little bit despondent when I left, just like I was when Arnie and Caddy and Barker were leaving. I'm like, oh God, no, please don't leave us. And I started thinking about, well, there's a way I could still help without continuing to serve because I have other things that I needed to focus on in life. And so in the last fall, I started talking to some of the current reps about it and now Senator Solman. And it was something that we, we all thought would be useful at the time, but none of us had really the time to work on building some infrastructure. And, you know, there's also political ramifications that, you know, if people don't like what you're doing and you're a sitting member, they can take away your gavel. They can primary you, you know, over your things. And so I got slightly more liberated being a retiree. I just <laughs> sit around in my sweatsuit most of the time and thought I could help build up an effort to make, you know, politics a little more civil within our party, uh, that's the goal anyway, and have an insurance policy for people who, you know, in their minds are doing the right thing, but suddenly find themselves in really sticky situations. And they, you know, I had a primary once, it wasn't overly well-funded or wasn't real serious, but it's the kind of thing where there was no infrastructure if you got into that situation, really at all. And so, and, and there wasn't anything that you know, you could use as like a, like a think tank to generate activity. Or if our group had said, hey, we need a poll done to see if our compromise proposal on some issue is actually better than the one that's in front of the legislature. We didn't have any money or resources to go do that. And we certainly didn't have our own political consultant who could produce mail or digital. And now we have all those things. So the I, I, was, I was looking through expenditures trying to figure out who exactly you supported Rep. Brad Witt received a lot of money. Daniel Wen in Lake Oswego. Aaron Woods received some in Senate District 13. Tweet Tran in Representative Barbara Smith Warner's district. High Fam. Was Rich Walsh on your list in Salem? No, Rich okay. wasn't in our list. I personally actually supported Rich because I live in I live here, and but he wasn't a, one of the ORPAC folks. The other person I think off of that list was, did we say Ken Helm? Oh, Ken Helm, of course. Yeah. Um, so in some cases, we it was more like, I won't say mentoring, it was almost like political consulting. Like in Ken's helm, uh, Ken's case, we came in and our consultant produced all his digital advertising. And in Daniel's case, they produced all the mail. And so sometimes the campaign was able to pay for that. And other times I had to pay for it through ORPAC or our group had to pay for it. And then, you know, there's other, like my own state pack also, I probably spent 30 grand over there also for a lot of these same people. So we endorsed in seven races, won six out of the seven. And Brad's is the one where I don't, I, I'd like to think these last five or 600 votes are going to magically turn it around, but I don't think so. So he's tied, like tied for second, basically. It's like 36, 32, 32 right now. I understand where you were coming from pretty clearly with the Ken Helm and Brad Witt seats. They were essentially incumbents, although Witt in a far different district. With these other, especially, so Daniel Wen was in a super competitive race. It's still too close to call. We don't know what's going to happen. Aaron Woods was in a very competitive race for Senate. Tweet Tran won heavily, but seemed competitive previously. Did you meet with all the candidates running? What were your criteria when you were deciding, is it about how moderate they were? Is it about how civil they were? Is it about what were the considerations when you're trying to pick who do I want to have carry this torch in the legislature? Yeah, like Dr. Reynolds called me. She goes, I'm not a moderate, you know? 
And I said, I, I'm aware of that. I said, that's <laughs> kind of a label put on us, actually. Not, I mean, there's a widely diverse group and by issue, really diverse. So you would have people real nervous about gun control. Then you would have Solman, the chief sponsor of the bill. You would have, you know, Caddy and, and Brad not on the cap and invest bill, Reardon and Lively chief sponsors of the bill. So it was actually hard to get us all to coalesce around anything other than they um, are all sort of pro-growth Democrats interested in having a friendly business climate, particularly for small businesses. And they're all pretty big on trying to find compromise, even if it's not necessarily bipartisan compromise always, it can be within the wings of the party find some compromise. And I think most of them are more centrist. And that's the criteria. I did meet with probably hmm, 90% of the candidates and or their challengers. Like I actually did some research to see, you know, if there's real no, no difference between two candidates, that's not somewhere we would really play in. It's if there's a real difference, like in Daniel Wen, Neelam Gupta, I could tell there was definitely ideological differences. Daniel's experience as a small business owner, um, things like that, where I could say, okay, this would make an actual difference in the future. Whereas some other places are like, well, they're both, you know, essentially got the same politics. So I'm not sure it makes any sense to play here. Hmm. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. And uh, I want to ask a question about uh, your your first run for office as well, and then and kind of some a little bit of your time in the legislature. So you were first elected in 2006, uh, which was a very bad year for Republicans. Uh, that whole <laughs> yeah. Iraq war thing didn't work out too well, uh, especially <laughs> at the ballot box. And uh, you unseated a Republican at that time and obviously served for a number of years in, in the state ledge. And I believe when you uh, resigned close to the end of 2021, you said something along the lines of uh, my spirit has been wounded or my spirit has has been yeah. broken. Uh, so this is kind of two questions in one and also very broad. Uh, I'm taking a playbook from Ben here of basically asking <laughs> a question that's impossible to answer uh, cleanly. But uh, could you talk a little bit about one, what you meant by that, but then also two, I think what's what's interesting about, and we actually talked a little bit about this with Tobias Reed as well, of kind of like the time that you serve compared to the political moment now is just how dramatically things have changed in terms of, I wouldn't even say the ability to compromise, but also just the ability to work with literally anybody across the aisle, no matter kind of where you are on the political spectrum. But would you kind of talk about one, what you meant by that, but then also two, how you've seen the legislature, legislator evolve over time, and then also maybe the goods and bads of that? Because imagine there is some goods, but then obviously there's some downsides too. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we all believe that the pendulum can swing. And I've been through a few swings of it now, having, you know, having been here a while, including I was a staffer just getting started when Newt Gingrich took over um, Congress with the contract. Um, with America. And like, I remember laying in bed crying uh, the next day. It was like my first campaign, my boss won, but I was just like, oh, I'm crushed. And I read Brent Walth's book, Fire at Eden's Gate that day. That Great was like book. the day after the slaughter of Democrats. And I was like, oh my, <laughs> I didn't really know that much about Tom McCall, actually. And I read about this thing called the Oregon Way in that book for the first time. And it talked about how he and Bob Straub worked together after running against each other and beating up on each other a little bit. They worked you know, together. I went on to work for Ron Wyden in a brutal election with Gordon Smith. I was the deputy 
doing a lot of the dirt digging on Gordon, actually. And um, then when we won, they became friends, really sincerely friends. And we and our offices worked really closely together, doing joint town halls, all kinds of stuff. So I saw in action, you know, what it was that I'd heard about from the 70s, saw Ron and Gordon doing it, got elected um, in, a, as you said, a pretty tough year for Republicans. And then I saw Jeff Merkley do this thing right off the bat. He appointed some Republican committee chairs. He created this thing that he and I, I, I talked to him like two days ago, right before he got COVID. We still talk about this thing that no one else liked at the time that he did, though, called the teamwork bill. And it was if two D's and two R's uh, co-sponsored a bill, um, and I think you could do two bills this way each, you got a guaranteed um, vote. Works public hearing and work session on the floor. And that or got taken away in the committee. In or committee the to go to the floor to go to the floor. Whoa! And so that's super so interesting. Like I, I was like, whoa! So I got really interested in these structural reforms that could produce more bipartisanship. And then my freshman year, Arnie, who was I've known since I'm five years old, Arnie was the chair of the ag committee, and we had some tough debates, field burning, and other things. And so Arnie's very collaborative, like he really shoots for consensus, you know, very seriously. And so I watched, um, you know, I watched how he operated. And then we kind of swung, I'd say, um, to Jeff left, Dave Hunt came in, we got a little more aggressive. Um, we lost six seats right after that. <laughs> and the pendulum swung right back dead to the middle. I watched Arnie come into speaker now, Roblin, and he and Bruce Hanna had what I would call a renewing the Oregon Way type session. You know, we did many, many things. Kitzhaber was talking about our need to unify. We did the CCOs. We did education reform. We did a bipartisan redistricting plan. We balanced a huge budget shortfall, and we all did it together and more unified. And then from that time on, we kept gaining and gaining and gaining more seats. And uh, one thing I was really proud of was I chaired a committee for 14 out of the 16 years. I never had a party line vote once, ever. And that included raising fees on hunting and fishing uh, folks, you know, and I got Republicans to help carry the water and vote for it. But that became less and less popular. It'd be like, I, I used to be definitely more in the left part of the caucus and a Schaffler left and Greg Matthews left and other people left. I just kept getting or towards the right end of the caucus and to finally probably the grumpy old guy complaining <laughs> about everything by the time it was done. Um, and so that spirit is wounded comment, it just got so vitriolic um, to dissent that people were not talking. And then outside of caucus, it's a it's not safe to talk in there anymore. You, you can't say what you're thinking out loud anymore. Um, things would leak, you know, just a lot of problems that made people really uncomfortable being authentically who they were and talking about issues in a real way because it was it was too risky that it was going to come back to bite you. And so um, and it's not I, it really actually, I have one question about that. Uh, I'm curious of uh, and obviously this is lumping a lot of people together, but did uh, in terms of like people not being able to meet people leaking private conversations and things like that. Did you notice that as younger legislatures started coming in? Like, I'm I'm a little bit curious if there's kind of an age difference with any of this, right? If it's like more millennials or maybe Gen X are coming in both on the right and left, they're just kind of inherently more partisan. 
Uh, was there any of that, or do you think it's just kind of as politics has evolved, it was just more consistent across the board that, mm. you know, Ben and I could have a private conversation in 2014, that was fine, but then after 2020, Ben would leak whatever I said or whatever, uh, which happens frequently anyway with Ben. But, <laughs> Um, most of the younger ones came in during COVID. So I would actually blame COVID for a lot of things because we used to eat lunch mm. together. I've never eaten. I've not sat down at a table with several of the freshmen. Never, you know, maybe mm. one word exchanged physically in person in, in that whole 21 session, just like one time, because we had to stay on our own floors and you had little arrows to walk, vote and go back to your office because no one was vaccinated, you know, for a good part of it. And yeah. so I think the camaraderie that you can build between R's and D's or D's and D's or R's and R's builds over lunch, builds over hanging out in the office, you know, and lobbying each other on a bill. And there just wasn't a lot of that. So I can't say that the younger folks it couldn't, that there couldn't be more bonding, but they definitely, and I'll just say this, it's, it's pretty much all freshmen. It's not just young freshmen. It's pretty much all freshmen. Um, they can come in with a real head of steam and then learn more about the system and that there are two sides to stories usually. And huh, that amendment's not such a bad idea. So I never really blame anyone. I hope nobody blamed me for how I behaved as a freshman. And I always give everyone to like their sophomore year before I start really passing much in the way of judgment, because you come in with all these preconceived notions, then the public gets involved through testimony, through calling your office. And you're like, wow, this is definitely not all one-sided. It turns out there's, shades of gray. Um, so our our whole concept of, of ORPAC is the political arm, but the other entity we created, not talked about that much, is called Renewing the Oregon Way. And that's that's the one that's meant to do all the work in between, work with city clubs, work with people to actually promote mediation as a way to solve problems, work with Oregon solutions. The political arm is just help win a primary but actually the aim of repairing our social fabric needs to go on all the time. And this is meant to be a long-term initiative. Mm. So um, you mentioned, you know, how freshmen uh, tend to show up when they get there in their first session. 2009 would have been your second session, right? Yeah. So 2009 um, in one of the, I think in the pamphlet article, you said the the bill that had the greatest impact um, that, that you worked on was the Metolius River bill. Um, and I was, I was reading about this, but this was a little before my time and the politics seem like they're from a different world, um, because of how things happen at the end. So, so basically here's my summary. Then I, I want to ask you about it. So basically there were these developers who wanted to put like a massive housing development at the headwaters, of the Metolius, um, the, the, the reporting basically said would dwarf Black Butte. So massive development. I think 3,000 homes or something like that. So you're a sophomore legislator in Salem, and somehow this becomes your cause to broker a, basically to broker using this really specific piece of land use policy that has never actually been used before in Oregon. Um, I thought, what's the designation? Area of critical state concern. What What's yeah, the story of how this all, how did this happen? How did this yeah. come together? So in, in 2007 session, um, I got put as a freshman on the committee to rewrite measure 37 and turn it into measure 49. And um, that was a little risky as a freshman in a swing seat, 
that we were about to overturn a voter approved initiative from only a few years earlier. But it became clear to a lot of people that I kind of was wonky on land use stuff and interested in learning um, about land use and talking about land use and EFUs and, you know, UGBs and sub two uses, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's like, great, he can do it because I don't want to learn about this stuff. It's complicated and controversial. Probably the probably the most people I've ever had come to hearings on any topic since I've been a legislator was measure 49. Um, just and which week was, after week after week. 49 was before my time. What did 49 do? 49 rewrote measure 37 to say people who owned their property before land use planning went in effect could get three home sites, even if currently their land is zoned exclusive farm use it kind of grandfathered them in retroactively 40 years and would let them build three homes. 37 was unlimited homes. So there were, God, I can't remember, tens of thousands of claims or, or claim, there were home, claims for tens of thousands of homes all through the Willamette Valley, all through the Hood River Valley. I mean, it would have totally changed the face of Oregon and made it look like California. And it was a big deal. I mean, it passed... 31, 29, 16, 14, went out in the ballot, passed overwhelmingly. Wow. So after that, people started looking at me as like, hey, you're kind of the land use guy who wants to, you know, stick up for the earth. So so Ben Westland came to me, God rest his soul. He came to me and said, um, Brian, I tried to do this bill to stop these developments at the Metolius. It died. It came over from the Senate. It went to House Rules, died. Um, and so... He, he said, I want you to, uh, he had become state treasurer at this, by this time. Yeah. He said, someone needs to take the baton and try and get this thing passed. And I was like, oh, geez. Uh, uh, meanwhile, over here, I had these farmers that I worked with on 49 saying, okay, the next challenge is there's all these destination resorts in and around Sisters and, and Prineville that are taking up all of our land and sucking up our water. Um, you got to stop these resorts. And we just had a baby. She was like a month old. Um, I just wasn't quite ready to, to, to do this hard work yet. So I asked Arnie, hey, later in the fall, could we go do a hearing um, on destination resorts? And he said, sure, it'll be a subcommittee of one, you. So go <laughs> ahead and do your hearing. So I went out to, to I think it was in Prineville, if I remember right. Um, and it was LCDC was holding a hearing and then the House Ag Committee was one man subcommittee on destination resorts held a concurrent hearing. And was this a real, all these people, was it a real, it real. subcommittee? He literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, appointed it. Yeah. Yeah. They like recorded it. And I had to open my meeting with just me, you know, and, and awesome. I think Greg McPherson had left and he was now on LCDC. So he was on the other side. He, would, he had been a mentor of mine. And then a bunch of the LCDC members, and there's a, just a room full of people. And a lot were complaining about resorts that were already built, but a lot were complaining about this proposed Jefferson County map. Um, and the one resort that was actually bigger, that was the 3001, it was over the hill from the headwaters and, and down in this other basin, the same basin theoretically, but, but really kind of further away. Then one was 600 units, and it was like uphill where we think the underground waters that create the Metolius come from. So people were really freaked out about the size of the one and the location of the other. And so in the audience was this lady named Linda Davis. She passed away, I think, a few years ago. 
she had been a, I think a, a county commissioner, a city planner, maybe even a mayor, knew land use law really well. And she goes, I don't understand why you guys on that Metolius thing just didn't use the statewide area of critical concern. And I have, I kept my notes, a little star. And I asked, I was like, what's that? And they said, well, it's a thing that got put in in 73. No one's ever used it. And as we looked it up, turns out Tom McCall tried to use it to save the Metolius in 1973 and failed his own LCDC that he created and appointed, voted him down at like the last meeting of his governorship, they voted him down on the Metolius specifically. So I was like, wow, we're on to something here. And I talked to Kulangoski, Governor Kulangoski's natural resource guy, Richard Whitman, and, and the governor had a bill that it would have just banned him outright. And so we said, well, what about this other method, you know, that Linda brought up? Seems like a good idea. So they went through all these hearings. They drafted a management plan. We approved it. 1614. 3129, it failed on its first vote, 30 to 29 with one absent. And and it's, you know, the thing that hangs on my wall as something that, you know, was just a most memorable part of my career was the battle for the Metolius that now half the people don't even remember or know what it is. <laughs> but my daughter and others someday will see it looking much like it did 100 years ago, 100 years from now. So I think that part's cool. Two quick follow-ups on that. Why did you care about the Metolius? I was um, afflicted by the fly fishing bug in 1995 or six after watching Brad Pitt's River Runs Through a movie. <laughs> in the fly fishing world, they call it the movie because that's when all everyone started fly fishing. And I got a book called Fishing in Oregon, and it talked about the magical qualities of the Metolius, um, including like all these people who have these like spiritual awakenings there. I'm like, oh, I gotta check this place out. So I started camping out there and my dog, OG, he loved to run around out there. And um, so I stayed in the campgrounds and fly fished and fell in love with the place. And I, it's just such a special, unique place that is like a step back in time with this old log cabin store, not much development at all. And it's just, it's an incredible feeling. And then I came to learn from Ben about all the other people who loved it. And he said, you're never going to work on something as powerful as this in terms of voter or, or constituent engagement. He goes, I have books and books and books of letters from people who've never written the legislature before. And so there was this analogy between when the beach bill got passed and Oswald West, and they got stuck later when Tom McCall had to re kind of reinforce the beach bill. He had to do some things to reinforce it later. Yep. And he was stuck. So he called on Oregonians to send in telegrams and, yeah. and that dislodged the bill. So when, when my Metolius bill died the first time, instead of compromising further, which we had already compromised, but actually allow one of the resorts to go forward, but just smaller and one of them to move it somewhere else, but stay, the, stay big. Um, I decided, no, I wanted to see if the public could push it over the finish line because I was spent. I was exhausted emotionally. I was done. It was every night for four or five months, waking up early, staying up late. And so people started writing in and badgering the people who had voted no. I mean, I, some of them told me the letters and the stories and, you know, Jefferson Smith's dad just beat the hell out of one of them. And this guy was like, he was <laughs> like my dad. Now he's just crushing me. And um, so eventually somebody flipped their vote. Larry Glesio flipped his vote and it became law. Um, but I just love the place. And, you know, I'd never owned a property there. I had never even stayed indoors out there. It was always a tent. 
And I think a lot of Oregonians, you you have a special place, but many of the special places are protected, like Multnomah Falls or Crater Lake or Oneonta Gorge. But that place wasn't yet fully protected, and now it is. It's a large area that there's no development really at all allowed there and will probably never be again. It is nice to hear um, the liberal tree hugger version of Brian Clem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mike, my second follow up on this before we oh, go ahead. Well, like I said, Mike Schaffler, who was the final vote for it, he said well, they could still log, right? <laughs> they could still log. OK, fine. I'll vote for it. Um, so I've got I've got one more um, uh, question from the past, and then Alex is going to bring us back to the contemporary political landscape. Yeah. Um, I used to work for Margaret Doherty. Margaret Doherty adored um, former Representative Vic Gilliam. And um, I know that you had a very close relationship with with Vic. The story- This is not a prop. This sits on my desk. That's Vic and I. It's just right next to me over here. What's the, uh, is that from the statutory hall thing? Yeah, this is a press conference where he was, talking to reporters on the steps and I'm standing with them. We're demanding Peter Courtney, give us a vote. So this is, this is what I was going to ask you about. Like most, this is true for staffers and legislators who serve during that session. They cite that moment as one of the most memorable moments of their legislative careers, where basically you give us the details here, but basically every single member of the house of representatives, Republican and Democrat literally marched like a protest march over to the Senate to basically protest Senate President Peter Courtney's refusal to give a hearing to a bill that, to my memory, would basically uh, put a statue of Mark Hatfield, who Vic Gilliam had worked for in Statutory Hall in D.C. Can you give the background of how that all came to be? Yeah. So every state gets to get two statues in Statutory Hall, and we have two now. But if you want to change them, the legislature needs to needs to vote and change the statues out. So we tried different iterations. We tried um, Abigail, um, oh God, so Dunaway, uh, and and Hatfield. Then we switched and tried Chief Joseph and Hatfield. But for Vic, Hatfield needed to be one of these two. Finally, actually, I think one compromised version was hey, we got three of them that were staying. One of them we're going to offer to Idaho, Chief Joseph, because actually he was he was born in Idaho. And while we wait to see what they say, we're going to send Hatfield and Abigail in the meantime. And then once they answer, we can always switch it out. But at least would have gotten Hatfield in there for a while. And remember, at this time, Vic had already been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease and was in, you know, he could still speak, but he walked um, pretty slowly. Um, and my mother-in-law had died from it just a year earlier. He and I had done the ice bucket challenge together. He didn't know he had it. Um, we did the ice bucket challenge and, you know, this was a guy who I had spent like 13 grand in a bunch of town halls trying to take out his first term in office. And then we became really close friends. So now we're working on this bill together. And And, and Vic was, Vic, Vic was like the comedian of the house. He was like the most friendly, like he, he was beloved. And then. He, he he gets Lou Gehrig's disease and just yeah. it, and so anyway that was that was yeah. the context the of this like he was be, he was beloved by the by the house before Everybody. before he got diagnosed oh, yeah. with yeah this. way before yeah he and I used to do the signy die videos together and we'd MC the signy practice signy or uh, yeah practice signy die parties together because we're both sort of goofy and we just you know we'd riff off each other and then this happens 
And he decided to stay one more session. Like some people in this family, I think thought the stress could be too much and it's time to, to resign. He had found out about August or September. This is the following February. And actually I was, had decided I was gonna leave the legislature at that point. I was, I was gonna mm -hmm. retire in 2015. I was really ready to go. John Kitzhaber was a huge mentor of mine. He had resigned earlier that year. I was not in a good place mentally about the public service and I was ready to go. And then Vic wanted to stay and get this bill passed. And so I decided, okay, I'll stay one more short session and see, but I may not file for reelection. You know, I really didn't think I would actually, um, but I wanted to help him. And so I said, I'll, you know, we'll move your office next to mine. I'll, you know, meet you at the car and help you get out of the car and carry your books and stuff like that. He's like, yeah, let's do it. So we do this thing. We get it through the house. I mean, it wasn't really hard to get it through the house, but we were constantly maneuvering with the Senate president's office, trying to figure out what might work. Because I think he had already killed it once or twice before already yep. in previous sessions. And we thought we had the secret, like we thought we had it with this like three-way thing <laughs> where Chief Joseph would go, you know, later and, and, and um, we get all the way down to the end. It's a long session. We're all the way to, or no, it's a short session. It's like 30 days and still not happening. And Courtney summons, Senate President Courtney summons Vic to his office. And Vic basically says to Mike McLean and a couple others, myself, um, he doesn't want to go alone. And we had talked about this nuclear option, but like, I didn't really <laughs> think we we're going to do it. So I started texting ian colgren the reporter for the oregonian this it's happening it's happening <laughs> and i run up to tina and i said can we recess the house and she sort of looks at me and she's like okay and so all six we recess the house all 60 people march over chanting victory victory <laughs> and we took over his office filled in his office and all these people are watching i've ever seen betsy johnson she's holy <laughs> we walked by and we we took over his office and and he had the meeting and and I don't remember if he had any I don't know if he had anybody in there with him but we all stayed outside you know for quite a while and um and you know finally he came out and in the end the bill didn't pass um but there was this crazy circumstance sorry uh so we went to his office afterwards with his daughter and um he had given me this book um, earlier, like a year earlier, called Jesus Calling that he really loved. And he was trying, it's a daily reading and spoken from kind of the voice of Jesus. And so we would read it together sometimes when things were tough in his disease or, or in the capital. And he, um, sorry, he asked me to read it. No, he tried to read it and he looked at what it said and he couldn't. Yeah. And he handed it to his daughter she looked at it and tried to read it and she couldn't, she choked up. And the funny part later is I picked the, it was the wrong date actually. It was from a month earlier. So it wasn't even that day's reading. So later he called it like the holy mistake, but it was so fitting to the moment. And so I got half of it out before I think I start bawling. And it basically said that um, kind of like God works in mysterious ways, but he works in the unseen not the scene. So it said, you're, you know, you're approaching this place in your journey, but the lessons you need to be learning are not what happens, but these other intangible. 
And so Vic, we all took it to mean like, it's okay that it didn't pass. You just unified the whole House of Representatives. And this is like the 2016 session where 2011, everyone got along and then it was getting worse and worse and worse. And this was like this one unifying thing um, for one moment in time. And then I think like three days later when it still didn't pass, we did it again. And we went out on the on the steps and started yelling at the set over and over. That's when all those reporters were there uh, because we're just screaming at the Senate, you know, doors. <laughs> Let us free. Give us our bill. Um, it was wild. Um, yeah. But it was really something. I, I love that story. And I think, um, you know, I know Vic meant a lot to a lot of people on a personal level, but on a political level, that probably is his greatest legacy was uh, that kind of unifying moment. Um, and now, Alex, you're going to be forced to do the worst transition of all time into politics after that story. <laughs> I, I was going to say transitioning from that beautiful story to uh, to to the mud, to the mud politics is, is something. <laughs> but but yes, yeah, so I wanted to ask a question. Uh, about something that you said uh, due to or related to the recent election with Carrick Flynn. And I have the quote up in front of me, but on this podcast, actually, we created a quite a bit of controversy for Carrick, uh, for something that I did not expect to be particularly controversial, but turned out to have a lot of news stories, both from local and national publications, uh, upended some endorsements, created some endorsements, but uh, the comment was essentially about uh, Carrick Flynn, uh, you know, saying how, uh, well, I, I mean, people can listen to the episode and paraphrasing his words, but basically that, you know, we need to care about the communities, uh, you know, that are impacted by, by the Spotted Owl, some of the rural towns that were, you know, essentially destroyed from this. Uh, I'll let folks listen to exactly what he said, because you can go listen to that podcast. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but uh I didn't think what he said was necessarily unreasonable, uh, which of course I'm a conservative Republican. So I imagine I think much differently than the Oregon League of Conservation voters. But uh, you had said in an interview with the Willamette Week, uh, well, one, I thought your first comment was funny, which is that you thought he was a Russian bot because of all the ads that you were seeing on YouTube, <laughs> but which a lot of well, people- I never probably heard like, him talk. I never heard him talk for real. So I'm not sure what this is <laughs> Yeah, and until, ben, until uh, your podcast, yeah. <gasps> Yeah, and Ben had like six pieces of mail that he showed him on our podcast of which uh, then grew, the by the way. Oh, I have them. Oh, yeah, there. you're in district two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it ended up being closer to probably 20, I would guess, from just Flynn. Yeah, yeah. and then well, and Cody Reynolds, he came in a yep. few times too. Yep. Oh, we yep. got some Cody Reynolds in there. Good. Uh, but then you had said, uh, but to this reporter at the Willamette Week, but the owl comments made me consider voting for him for the first time. Uh, can you expand on, you know, why did that line and specifically kind of make you have second thoughts about him? Uh, and what did you, what were you sort of referencing in general? Yeah. Um, so I'm from Coos Bay, born and raised there. Um, my, my grandfather worked in the mills for a little bit. My dad worked in the mills for a little bit. Um, my brother and I both worked for Warehouser actually, but it was not in the mills. We were in corporate IT doing computer work. So lots of people there, they have strong feelings about the decline of the timber industry, where when I was in high school, the Spotted Owl got listed. There were, I think, 35 mills at that time. Um, tens of thousands of people worked in that industry in those kinds of towns in Oregon. And um, my high school used to be 2,000 plus people. When my dad went there, it's down to 800 now. Um, so when I heard him say, uh, uh, you know, essentially, 
it's an owl and there's all these people. And in fact, another owl, I know what he meant, which is the barred owl. That's what everyone from Coos Bay knows that even after the decline of the timber industry, the barred owl still is what's killing a lot of the spotted owls. We're now currently shotgunning them, paying people to shoot the barred owl to try and see if we can't save the spotted owl because the timber um, wasn't the only factor going on. And it wasn't that there, there was some overcutting going on that was not sustainable in the volume levels, but we went from 5 billion board feet down to like 300 million board feet. We're importing more than 52% of our lumber currently from Canada in Oregon. We can't even supply our own wood needs. And yet these towns are still meth central. I mean, dying, hurting towns. And so what I saw in his comment was he, he did live through this like I did and others like me in Oak Ridge and in these kind of towns. He did live through it. He's not from outer space or Russia. He was a kid who his community got nailed just like mine did by this huge economic shift. And the question for Democrats is, what have we done or what are we willing to do to remedy it? Because nothing has worked so far in Coos Bay or Oak Ridge. Um, some of them, tour, like Astoria, they used to have bumper stickers. We ain't quaint. But actually, they are kind of quaint now. They, they do have enough Portland year-round tourism. But there's no big city straight across um, east from Coos Bay where people run over for the weekend and spend money. Eugene has Florence and Salem, we got Lincoln City and Corvallis has Newport and Seaside Cannon Beach, Gearhart, Astoria, they have Portland. There's nothing from Coos Bay that people, there's no beach house owners from the Valley that are putting money into that economy in the winter. So you have summer tourism, then nine months of really nothing. Um, and so to me, it was an authentic sign that he actually is a, a person who is a, not afraid to speak his mind and even if I don't agree with them, in this case, I happen to hold similar views about the decline of the, the timber industry without a replacement. Promises of a replacement, but no actual replacement to the point where unemployment and domestic violence and substance abuse is massive. When it wasn't like that when I was a kid, people had jobs, they had new pickup trucks, you know, they, they could pay their mortgage. And so it's just touched something, you know, in me. Now, I didn't like that he wasn't from Salem because I wanted someone from Salem to be a congressperson, not from outside of Salem. So that part was a strike. But at least I thought, OK, this is a real person who's not afraid to come on your show and say what he really thinks. And I think mm -hmm. authentic, authenticity and candor are super important in politics. And I was happy you know, to see someone, no filter, speak his mind because I think that's what independent, unaffiliated and moderate voters of both parties are looking for. So to, to yeah, and uh, all right. Sorry, I do have one question about that before uh, Ben has one more. I uh, yeah, and I forgot who I asked this with. It was some Democrat. Maybe it was Val Hoyle. But uh, I feel like there's a lot of talk when it comes to the urban-rural divide of you know we need to replace these timber jobs, right? And I do think some of them probably just inherently are gone because of automation yeah. or better yep. policy True. or whatever. But there is probably a very good number of jobs that are, are blocked because of federal, state regulations, et cetera. Uh, now, a lot of the time we hear this with things like coal workers, right? You know, they're like, we're going to take all these coal workers and they're going to build, yeah. you know, solar panels everywhere, uh, which uh, I mean, I'm yep. sure that's happening to some extent in places like West Virginia. But uh, I also think that's a lot of rhetoric, too. Uh, and I don't just blame the Democrats, but I think that there's a lot of rhetoric from the GOP too, right? That they're destroying these communities 
they're taking all the timber jobs, but then like, is there actually a plan to kind of bring some of those back? I, so I, I'm not saying it's just a democratic issue or Democrats are at fault. But my question is uh, like, do you see any alternative to kind of the status quo right now? Like, are there actually jobs where, I, I mean, I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, oh, everyone's yeah, gonna yeah, build solar yeah, panels yeah. or like, we'll teach the timber people how to code. But I think <laughs> a lot of that sounds great from a rhetoric perspective to get you elected in November. But in terms of translating that into actual policy and action, I think is incredibly difficult. Uh, just kind of curious of your thoughts on that, especially growing up in a place like Coos Bay. No, you're gonna, if you didn't know this, you're walking right, right into a, an answer to another question, which is what am I doing now? And why didn't I run for Congress? Cause I definitely <laughs> had people ask me and I went to DC and talked to people and, and looked into it. Um, so I'm currently um, um, a, a partner in a project in Coos Bay, my hometown, um, that will create 2,500 permanent jobs. That town only has 30,000 people. And it is to develop a $1.8 billion container terminal that will bring a million containers per year to help solve the West Coast supply problem into Coos Bay, put them on trains and run them up to Eugene. It'll create another roughly 2,000 jobs in Lane County also. And, and so these are um, a lot of union jobs, very high paying jobs, and it's because of the Infrastructure Act. And so I see, you know, I met with President Biden about this directly. Um, um, I went to his, his speech um, right after there was an event. There was a speech and he talked about Coos Bay and I got a chance to talk to him for a second. And I said, hey, um, you know, I'm Brian Klein, I'm from Coos Bay and, and my hometown's just like Scranton. And he goes, <laughs> well, Coos Bay is about to get a whole lot of money. <laughs> and so we're waiting for this big grant. So I'm hoping like it wasn't exaggerating. But I believe that people like him who know about the industrial Midwest and how it got hollowed out, or they know about coal country, or they know about timber country, they do believe that there needs to be something. But a lot of times the market on its own isn't going to do it because there's not enough people or things aren't developed. So what we're doing down there, it's a public-private partnership where the, you know the, the feds, for the most part, with the port of Coos Bay some, and the state in some. They're investing in some infrastructure in the channel. They're investing in some infrastructure on the rail line. And then my partners and I are bringing somewhere between 800 million and a billion dollars to invest in this container terminal. And it will totally change the economy of that region. And to me, that's way more important than me ever running for anything ever again, besides taking care of my mom who's over there in the other room. That was the other thing. The thing that I cited for leaving was I, I wanted to spend more time with her. My daughter's 14. She doesn't always want to be around me, but sometimes she does and I want to be close by. I didn't know about the Coos Bay thing when I left, but about a week after I left, this company called and said, how would you like, we have a business proposition for you. And so this is, this, you know, Biden bucks, President Biden's dollars, uh, DeFazio's legacy for his district was getting this IIJA bill passed. He's all over it. Val's all over it. Wyden and Merkley, well, the whole cliff bands, all of them have endorsed it. The governor's endorsed it. And like, this is what I was talking about when I said, like, you got to do something. It's use the power of government for good in a rural community to where people may think actually the public and the private could go together versus just pork that built a highway to nowhere and somewhere in Hawaii or Alaska and created a few temporary jobs. But then in the end, nothing ongoing. You, you need to use it wisely to meet a real need. Um, so that's that's what I think is 
what people should be doing. Um, and, you know, quit voting to ban uh, dogs being able to be used to hunt cougars in rural Oregon. Let them hunt dogs with cougars if they want to. You know, fine, don't do it in urban areas, you know, and, and but, but let, let Coos County, if they want to run around with their dogs, you know, like my dad and his buddies, just let them do it. And that'll help on the urban rural divide front and rural people, you know, <laughs> stop, stop calling Portland, Sodom and Gomorrah and just let them do some <laughs> tattoos and some piercings. It's fine. This you is what call tiger at that. Hey, wait yeah. a minute. Uh, this is restorative justice hour with uh, Brian Clem, where we're bringing people together. Actually, my last question, um, our last question builds on that a little bit, but actually from a more political lens. Um, so there's there's going to be a lot of Democrats on the ballot um, in seats that are swing seats or that maybe shouldn't be swing seats, but will be swing seats in 2022 yeah. because it's such a bad year for Democrats, um, including a lot in rural or semi-rural areas. What what would your advice be for Democrats running in those seats about how to communicate to voters um, in this political environment? I think they need to be themselves. I think they need to be candid and frank. People have to see that you aren't beholden to your party. So if you think Portland is a hellhole <laughs> and the and Antifa, you know, went too far and co-opted the civil rights legitimate protests and just turned into anarchy, say it. Like people need to hear you say that outside of Portland to know that you aren't just a party line person. If you didn't like David Gomberg, if you didn't vote for House Bill 3115, which codified sort of Portland's standards on homelessness statewide, it's not rolling out very well. I'll tell you that in city councils all over the state, they're real pissed about this bill. If you vote against it, say it in your campaign. You're here for your community. You're not here for your party. And this should apply to any Republican, too, by the way. And, you know, I've talked a lot about more the Democratic side. Certainly the rise of Trump, the vilification of a Liz Cheney and a Mitt Romney, that's a huge problem. But I can only do so much to, like, have my own little rescue mission within my party, leaving the Lincoln uh, movement or Lincoln with the Lincoln, Lincoln Project. Or other. Well, those guys... Lincoln, Lincoln Project. Project. Let, you know, they, yeah, and, and Greg Walden is a rational dude. He could bring balance back in the Republican Party. I'll work in the Democratic Party. We'll meet somewhere in the middle. Um, so I think that's the key is they have to understand that you aren't necessarily in favor of everything that's become law in the last several years um, that you don't like as a suburban or rural voter. And, and, and you know, you, you are willing to buck the tide. The, the key is back to the very beginning of this, if you do that in the political campaign infrastructure, who gives you money for doing that? Who backs you for being a centrist and a compromiser versus the two parties wanting to eject you? You know, both of them consider, you know, I've been called a, a turncoat Democrat on a moveon.org petition with five of my colleagues. Certainly Liz Cheney has been called worse than that. And so who backs that? Well, hopefully it's, you know, uh, what do we got here? The um, Oregon Cable Telecommunications Association. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, Tom Mason, a former legislator who sent me a $100 check. And it's all the people who've said, we totally believe in what you're doing. You need an insurance policy. So if people take tough votes, they don't have to run back to the left or right motherships for campaign resources. There's a place in the middle that's funded that will help protect you. Mm. I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Um, uh, Brian Clem, thank you for joining us on the podcast. 
Usually we at, we interview people who are currently running for office and we say, you know, where can people go to follow your campaign? But if anyone's interested in something you said or wants to read more about what you're up to, where should they, uh, where should they go to learn more? Um, I have a Facebook page. I think I have to still say yes to everybody. So it's not a public one anymore, but I usually do. Or they can email me, brian at brianclem.com or um, my cell phone's 503-931-CLEM. <laughs> it's an old campaign line I kept. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, all right. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, and everyone, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Ben. <laughs>